Hey there, friends. Merry Christmas. It's great to be together with you today. Our passage that we will be reading from is Matthew chapter 1, verses 18, all the way down through verse 25. Hear now God's word to us. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's go ahead and pray. Dear God, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this beautiful testimony of the conception as well as the way you're holding together the family of Jesus in these early days. God, may you give us eyes to see, windows into what you are doing in the world, even in this story and in this particular time. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for speaking to us. Help us to receive today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, here's the deal. Even if you hate music, Christmas music, that is, I love Christmas music. Everybody is humming or singing Silent Night at this point. Silent night, holy night, right? Everybody's singing it. You're humming it. You know, families are like nudging each other to stop singing it because everybody's singing at this point. We're, we're in the full throes of the Christmas season. And it's that time of year where we really start to lean in and remember how Mary and Joseph, that ancient couple, are actually gazing with love at the Christ child. And try to imagine what they were thinking, what they're seeing, what they're feeling in that moment at the birth of Christ. You know, there's something fascinating, having had a few children myself um, at this point in life, there are these precious first moments, and almost nobody tells you and really ex helps you expect what to expect in those early moments with your children. You almost don't even believe it until it actually happens. You see, from the moment a child is born, there's like two or three things you learn when they are placed in your arms, almost instantly. It becomes, and these two or three things, they become more and more evident in that first month, and then they continue to grow as the years progress. These are the hints of who they are, right there hidden in the moment of their birth as they grow into who they are to become. You know, with each of our kids, we noticed something when they were born, and it's influenced what we actually named our children. With Ava Brielle, that means song of God. When she was born, her fingers were intertwined and her legs were crossed. I kid you not, just this little sweet angel. When Israel Jude was born, um, he came out completely opposite, fists, you know, full-flung, uh, legs apart, ready to, to wrestle, and yet garners everyone's attention for praise and admiration. 
When Zion was born, I mean, he was our largest kid. Even our doctor was like, whoa, where were you hiding this baby? I mean, 10 pounds plus, he definitely fits Zion, which is highest point. He's head and shoulders, going to be head and shoulders above his brother and sister. And uh, Ezekiel, mighty one of God. He fits his name, right? So we, we saw these early characteristics in our children that were more than physiological, that we're even seeing over these months and these years as they're growing into them. And if you know them at all, then you've seen these things grow in them as well. What was hidden at birth is slowly becoming a deeper reality. It's enchanting. And for us as Christians, Christmas is that moment for us when it comes to heaven. You see, this Advent, we're in a series on heaven. That's that future reality we ache for that God brings together his purposes and his plan to ultimate fruition. And so far, we've talked about the reality of heaven, that Jesus himself believed in heaven and said that he was going away to prepare an actual place for us called heaven. We've talked about how the place of heaven is not in some galaxy far, far away. It's not a story of us going up, but it's actually of heaven coming down and heaven and earth becoming one. We've talked about the people of heaven, how people of every ethnicity, of every language, of every culture and gender and orientation, so on, are unified in our exclusive trust and allegiance to Jesus and his way. And today, all this, all that God longs to do here in this little sweet six-pound, eight-ounce little baby Jesus, we get a glimpse of heaven breaking into earth. And it's something we can easily miss if we aren't looking for it. You see, heaven is actually hidden in the birth of Jesus. Heaven is hidden in the birth of Jesus. We get just a glimpse, but ah, it's an extraordinary glimpse that we do get. We see what makes heaven, heaven. And it's hidden in Christmas night some 2,000 years ago. And those ancient parents of Jesus, they saw it too. They were guided by the angels to better understand it at the very birth of Christ. And it's the most important part of heaven. So let's take a closer look. Turn with me, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. And I'm going to go ahead and read it for us again here, verses 18 through 21. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. And you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now imagine, I mean, just poor Joseph. He's going to bed, maybe praying about his marriage, the dreams of that perfect life shattered. And it's really over before it even began because they were only betrothed. And he's there wrestling in his own turmoil. And remember, as he's thinking about divorce and doing so quietly, this isn't done in an individualistic society. Divorce involved clans. It involved kin. Neither marriage nor divorce was this isolated individual act between two people, but it involved whole communities. And Joseph, he cared for Mary. He's heartbroken, but he won't seek revenge. He's a truly good man. This little language resolved to divorce her quietly is code for not bringing her before the whole community and shaming her as an example. Everyone, of course, would still find out about the divorce, 
but how it would be handled be quietly with two witnesses rather instead of bringing it before the whole town of probably some 400 people. So there Joseph is wrestling this night and God comes to him in a reply and he urges, he urges Joseph to stand by Mary and he actually says that he's in this, that God's the one doing all of this. He says, I'm going to save the world and I'm sending my son to you. He's the one who's actually within the womb of Mary. But here's the catch, Joseph. Okay, I'm the one doing this, but I'm also going to destroy your life in the process. It's going to ruin your reputation. Actually, this family, it never gets over the scandal that comes upon them because of the initial birth of Jesus. Mary and Joseph and Jesus, they live in the shadow the rest of their lives. I mean, the Pharisees bring this up later on in the story of Jesus. The shame of this and that particular culture was a very, very heavy burden. And yet, if Joseph, he wants to be a part of the work of heaven, if he wants heaven himself, he has to be willing to accept scandal in the present. You see, heaven in some ways is hard to see in the birth of Jesus because heaven is wrapped and scandal. Really, Jesus is the scandal of heaven. And frankly, he still scandalizes every time he breaks into our lives. God's future always shakes up, shakes up our present. It never leaves it the way he found us. And the big question, even as we enter into the Christmas story, is are we willing to be scandalized ourselves? Of course, there are Christians around the world who have given their lives for the sake of the gospel, Christians throughout history who have done so, but even here in the United States, in a country that in many ways was founded with some Christian ideals, to truly follow Jesus and to pursue His kingdom purposes will come with a great cost. This isn't just for other people somewhere else, but that scandalizing reality impacts us here, in this moment, even now. And it's Frankly, the less commercialized framework of the Christmas story. It's the part that rarely we want to talk about. And yet, and yet, this Jesus who's wrapped in scandal, this Jesus is the mystery of heaven. Sure, he's the scandal of heaven, but he's also the mystery of heaven. Look at what Matthew writes here in verses 22 through 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. I can only imagine, Joseph, how hard it would have been for him to believe what all this meant in reference to prophecy as he's thinking about the Christ child, the Son of God finally coming, and Mary, Emmanuel, God incarnate. Somehow God was in this child. And of course, he didn't have neat categories. No one did at this moment. All he had was wonder. He had hope. Intrigue as to what it is that God was doing in his life. Because the first time since the rupture of heaven and earth back at the beginning of time, suddenly here heaven and earth are reconciled. And it's not later in the new creation when all things are reconciled. Instead, it's first with a person. It's here in Jesus. And that gives us great hope. Because the birth of Jesus is actually a constant reminder that God can bring together heaven and earth, for they are such as one in Jesus. Heaven, the very concept, is possible because Jesus was born. Heaven broke into earth. And he will actually embody this mystery for all eternity. Fully God, fully man, forever 
as real as the person who's maybe sitting next to you? Or I encourage you to, to just pick up your hand and look at your hand. Look at the flesh and bone, the scars maybe, the calluses, and to imagine that God was as real as the hand in front of you or the person sitting beside you, that he came and took on flesh in a way that's tangible, touchable, and earthy. The one who breathed life into existence actually took on that same life himself. God became human. And in many ways, this is just an absolutely astounding reality that's beyond our comprehension. We have a God who became flesh. The one through whom all of earth and all of heaven was spoken into existence became human. And you really can't wrap your brain around it. You just have to sit in awe of it. As finite creatures seeking to imagine the infinite realities of our good God becoming finite, I don't claim this to be a contradiction or even an impossibility. Rather, it's just too good of a possibility, too wonderful a reality, too awesome a truth to not lead us to worship. And some of you may be thinking, okay, Gabe, yes, 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 I get it. But what is hidden about heaven in the birth of Jesus? I mean, what's so beautiful and astounding that a scandal can't even taint the image of what God is doing in Christ? What mystery so great, so now revealed that it causes the whole cosmos to reorganize that they can guide wise men to come around the manger and even shepherds to come and look in, outcasts, social outcasts, so that they can hear their own, with their own ears the cries of God become flesh. Well, Matthew chapter 1, verse 23 is an astounding verse. And look at what Matthew doesn't want us to miss when it comes to this name. Look with me again. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. End quote of Isaiah 7. And then Matthew says, which means God with us. Now listen, there are plenty of times where Matthew quotes Scripture or there are names that he is assuming that his readers understand. But here, it's as if Matthew adds a big exclamation point on the passage from Isaiah 7, reminding us of the promised one to come. He does the work for us, and it's as if he's shouting, Don't miss this! What was Joseph to see, Joseph to see in the child at his birth in Christ? In the very God become flesh, what is he supposed to see in this very moment? Emmanuel, God with us. These words are at the center of the message of the whole of Scripture. I mean, here's what we normally think when it comes to our own experience or how the world works. We normally think of us without God. God apart from us. Us striving after God, us seeking to replace God, others telling us that no one wants to be with us, especially not God, but God actually with us to know it, to see it, to feel it, to be wanted to that degree, to be present, that proximate with the infinite creator of the universe, going to extraordinary lengths that he might genuinely be with us. You see, when God looks down at a broken and dark world on Christmas Eve, He knows that heaven has to get back down there. He's had a plan to do this from the dawn of time, and at right, at just the right moment. He doesn't send a cure for cancer right away, or magic bread to feed the world, or even an army 
or even an angel to overthrow the oppressive regime of Rome. Even though all of these are true of heaven in the end, he sends Jesus, Emmanuel, because he himself is that first taste of heaven. He is the great physician. He is the bread of life on whom we feast. He is the great victor over all evil. This is what God sends to come and to bring life. And he addresses all of this when he comes in very real ways and will address all these finally when he does return. But first he comes to address our most pressing problem, the problem we often want to overlook and what has ultimately made us us without God. What has always kept us from God's presence? Sin. Consistently missing the mark of what God has created us to be. Our own personal affront to God, choosing life without God, maintaining or even just frankly slightly preferring life on our own terms without God in some even small insignificant ways we might say. Jesus came to make a way of forgiveness for all sin, great and small, hidden and public, that we might know reconciliation with God. This is at the heart of what he's come to do and at the center, the linchpin of the restoration of all things. Why? So we can go to heaven one day? So we can make the wildest of our dreams come true? So we can finally get our needs met? Well, in some sense, yes. But only in so much as that yes is connected and deeply intertwined with a framework of God with us and his purposes for us. You know, I don't think I've met a person who doesn't want to go to heaven. I'd be hard-pressed to think when I really had a deep conversation with an individual that they didn't ultimately want some framework of heaven for their future. But the glimpse of heaven we see in Jesus is that at the center of all that God is to do is a beautiful picture of God with us. And so the overarching question that God poses out of heaven is this. Do you want him with you? That's one of the most central questions to human life. Do you want God? Do you want Him with you? John 17, verse 3, we read, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Knowing is never mere information in the biblical narrative. It's always about relationship, trust, and relying on Him. Imagine just for a moment, if Christmas was a time when you hopped on Amazon and just treat yourself to just a couple of the nicest things you've wanted all year round, and that was it. That would be kind of fun for a season, but Christmas as we know it would never endure. It would lack the very essence of what makes this season such a gift. Why? Because people make Christmas Christmassy, right? You get them a gift and you see the joy in their face. And they look back and they see the joy in your face as you're receiving and celebrating the joy that they're experiencing. It's very relational and dynamic. In the same way, Jesus, He and He alone makes heaven heavenly. It's this intimacy and this delight in Him that makes heaven what it is. Us delighting in Him and Him delighting in us. You see, Jesus, He isn't just our ticket into heaven. He Himself is the prize. He's the point of heaven. As we read later in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, they're going to actually be added unto you. 
This righteousness, what is the righteousness? But Christ himself, the right one who brings and brings order and rightness to the world. Do you want him? That's the overarching question of the biblical narrative. Because if not, and you want to, maybe that's a start. Praying and asking that God would help you want to want him. It's as simple as that. You may say, Gabe, I, if I'm just transparent right now. I'm fine. I feel fine. I know I should want God, but I don't. Start there by asking God to cultivate within you a want to want him. And then if you want to take one step further, if you want to know him more, then trust him in some simple steps of obedience. When you read something in God's word, do it and just see what God does. For example, in John chapter 14, verse 23, we read, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and what? Make our home with him. This is heaven language, because at the center of heaven is God with us. I would want him and for him to dwell richly within us. This is what the Apostle Paul prays for in Ephesians chapter 3. That Christ, that he might dwell within us richly. This is heaven breaking into earth, breaking into our hearts. And that's the source of joy unspeakable, of love down to our bones, a restoration of hope, heaven breaking in, all this breaking in, and the starry Middle Eastern night. You see, he's who we're made for. This is where the world is going. He's at the center of heaven and earth become one. And in the book of Revelation, what's at the center of the new creation? But Jesus is thrown, the Lamb of God who's slain before the foundation of the world, but now exalted and the center of God's people and his worship. And you know, one day, love himself will forever be with us, unadulterated by sin and doubt, but shining as brilliantly as the noonday. And if you can imagine, if you can imagine heaven without Jesus, then you've missed the whole thing. He didn't just come to give us heaven, but to give us himself and heaven within him and heaven with him. So do you want him? Do you want him with you? Because he wants you. He wants you desperately. He's shown he's not afraid at all of scandal. I mean, that's abundantly clear in the birth of Jesus. He's not afraid of engaging the least, of making himself known to the ones the world rejects. And he moved heaven and earth to chase you if you're only willing to surrender to him. Do you want him with you? He wants him with us. Let's pray. Dear God, thank you so much that hidden in the birth of Jesus is this glorious insight to heaven of your deep longing to be with us and that one day that will be at the centerpiece of your finally restored world, heaven and earth one, as us being restored with you. Help us to long for you more deeply now, to live in light of your presence more faithfully, and so have a taste of heaven that energizes us in faithfulness in the present and so glorifies you to the surrounding world. We love you so much. Thank you for Christmas. You are a gift. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. And every Sunday, we uh, gather around, in many ways, a wooden tree upon which our Lord was crucified to remember the gift of salvation freely given to all who are willing to receive Him.
Through common broken bread, we remember Jesus' body broken for us, and through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have some of those elements available to you, I'd encourage you to partake in the meal together with those who are around you in remembrance of Christ and to know his presence afresh. But before we do partake, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whenever you're ready, enjoy the taste of heaven.